Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Welcome to Healthy Tales. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We are excited to be here talking about and analyzing the latest in animal-related news. Later, I'll go in-depth exploring specific health topics with my expert friends. And finally, I'll get to wrap things up talking about my recommended product of the week. My hope is that my listeners will gain a better understanding of veterinary medicine and how best to take care of pets by talking with some of the most renowned and respected experts in our field. I really want taking care of our pets to be fun and joyful so we can not only help our pets live better lives, but also create incredibly strong bonds between pets and their families. We want to help you unleash your pet parenting power. While this show is intended to be full of information and helpful tips, it is also just a conversation between friends and colleagues because that's really what I'll be doing is interviewing a lot of my friends. I am super excited about this show because veterinarians have a very unique perspective on world events as they relate to animals, but we can also have extremely varied opinions when it comes to issues such as medical care, animal-related legislation, and animal welfare. This show will give us opportunities to teach you about the variety of ways veterinarians approach diseases and our various medical philosophies, all of which is at the core of connecting with clients and providing best care for our pets. All right, does that sound accomplishable, you guys? Don't worry, I'm not in the studio talking to myself. I'm actually here with my three co-hosts. As always, the always awesome, amazing Dr. Robbie Unsel. He's my ideas guy. Unsel, was this, uh, was this show your idea? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not this time. <laughs> Uh, again, uh, Dr. Utsa, I'm so excited uh, that you're here, uh, and I know you love being on the radio, so I had to ask you first, my man, all right? Uh, next, we have the incredible Dr. Elaine McCarthy, all right? She is the vet that all vets would take their pets to, uh, and she's also extremely excited to be on the show. So, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, thank you so much for being here, all right? Happy to be here. <laughs> all right. Uh, and our special guest later in the show will be the well-loved um, board-certified veterinary behaviorist, Dr. John Sarabasi, talking to us about bite prevention. He is the co-author of Decoding Your Dog, and he is, we are absolutely thrilled to have him on our show. But first, let's pause for some news. You see what I did there, guys? <laughs> My co-host and I are going to highlight and discuss animal-related news from around the world. Uh, let's start in the huge swing state, all right, of uh, Michigan. Michigan bans decline. New proposed legislation in Michigan would make it illegal for residents to declaw their house cats. State Representative Nate Shannon is sponsoring the bill which would prohibit any surgical procedure that prevents normal claw functioning in cats. Violators of the ban would be slapped with a thousand dollar fine. Ouch. Declawing has long been viewed as controversial by veterinarians and animal rights groups. The AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, defines uh, its surgical amputation and discourages this procedure. Michigan would join New York as the only other state to ban this practice. Um, again, this bill, uh, I read the bill. It's only, it's extremely short, all right? Uh, it's pretty simple and straightforward. It leaves the window for declawing a cat if done for therapeutic purposes. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, if we have some kind of mass or something like that, they would obviously need to declaw. Uh, <clears throat> I'm extremely I, I, I do love that Michigan is taking this, you know, this measure, this progressive step. And um, because I, I think, again, it's, it's I think it's best for cats. 
my only concern that I have with with bills such as these is that we always, there can be sometimes some repercussions um, that follow uh, such sweeping legislation. I did have an owner one time ask me, you know, uh, when he wanted to have his cat declawed, you know, and again, our practice has been pretty good about being able to make sure owners know about alternative options and getting owners to do some of these other things, um, such as scratching posts and, uh, and, other, and other type of things to help them prevent them from uh, declining their cats. But the owner did ask me, he's like, have you ever had any post-operative complications from this type of procedure? And I had to think about it for a while, and I actually had never had any complications. Again, I've been obviously been in the veterinary field for over 20 years now. And, uh, and even like overweight cats, you know, and, and cats, uh, you know, declawed later on, I actually have never had any, any complications. And so the last thing I ever want to see is basically an uptick of cats being relinquished or more cats going to shelters. Cause that's obviously the last thing we need. There are, cats are always at mass capacity at shelters. And so, but again, I, I am, I'm happy for this bill. I hope more States take this measure. But I definitely want to make sure we are watching for that, you know, and so your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I, I definitely uh, would agree with the, the, the sentiment that this, uh, this bill does seem to be a movement in the right direction. Um, and I, I do feel like we need to do a little bit of a better job educating the public on what decline uh, actually is. Because uh, a lot of people don't actually realize that it, it does involve amputation. Um, of the uh, of the of the claw, um, and it's sort of equivalent uh, to uh, in a person kind of amputating uh, the digit of uh, the fingers uh, up to uh, up to one of the knuckles. And so, uh, with with that in mind, um, you know, I, I did have a peek at the bill uh, as well. And you're right; it, it is incredibly uh, short. And I'm hoping that since it's kind of in the early stages uh, in the legislature, that there are some uh, additions and uh, fine tuning that can help sort of um, uh, make, the, make the bill a little bit more practical uh, for everyday uh, veterinarians. Um, and I think one of the things that they definitely should probably include is a conversation with owners that um, are, are immunocompromised, uh, just because some of these uh, people that um, you know, have a, other uh, health issues that very well might require them to be on uh, immunosuppressive medication, uh, getting you know, scratched by their cat could have catastrophic uh, consequences. Um, and I don't see any sort of leeway in the bill at the moment for a consideration like that. And so I do hope that the wording changes uh, just a wee bit. And um, I do think probably kind of leaving the, the language similar to the, the AVMA's recommendations, which um, at the end of the day does leave it up to the veterinarian. Because uh, I do think that most vets uh, do tend to make these decisions um, with quite a lot um, of, of you know, decision making and, and, and research and conversations with, uh, with owners. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, it's a good step in the right direction as far as that we need to increase our uh, awareness of animal welfare and trying to uh, kind of give them the best life that we that we can while not kind of interfering long term with with how they're going to, um, you know, are we going to be hurting them long term causing arthritis in those in those cats. Um, I think it it definitely needs to be a decision with the veterinarian and the owner while, while the veterinarian is kind of taking on that role of educating the, the owner to kind of make the best decision for, for the, the cat. I don't think that it's something we can just make a blanket statement overall because um, we will have those situations where uh, a cat's going to go back to the shelter because, you know, for whatever reason, the, the owner can't have that, that cat with claws anymore because they're immunocompromised or some other situation. Um, so I do think it needs to be taken into consideration, but I think it is a good idea to, to have the, raise these questions of animal welfare and not just kind of brush it to the side. 
Excellent. Absolutely, guys. And so uh, absolutely great points. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that we have to see how these bills and things like that unfold. We have to see the long-term effects uh, of these. Um, but you guys made the great, great point that education is, is really the key, the central focus uh, of this and making sure owners understand the actual procedure and know, understand the long-term health of, of these pets is key. So excellent. And so, Robbie, what do you got on the, the social uh, conscious sheltering front? Yeah, sure. So uh, the, the article that we uh, did choose today uh, is in the Denver Channel um, in, uh, at the end of February. Uh, and the title of it is uh, Animal Expert uh, Believes Colorado Bill uh, to Improve Shelters Gives uh, Legitimacy to Kill Shelters. Um, and so <clears throat> the, uh, the article kind of uh, covers the uh, Colorado Senate Bill uh, 164 uh, that is currently before uh, the uh, Colorado legislature uh, for consideration. And uh, specifically, the, the article discusses the concerns of the bill uh, from the perspective of Miss Maxine Major, uh, the president and founder of the Creative Acres uh, Animal Sanctuary in Brighton, uh, Colorado, and also the support of the bill from a uh, veterinarian and veteran of the U.S. Army Corps, uh, U.S. Veterinary uh, Army Corps, uh, Dr. April Steele, uh, who is uh, the current president and CEO of the Dumb Friend League, uh, a very large humane society in, in Denver. And moreover, uh, Dr. Steele is also a current uh, delegate for the American Veterinary Medical Association uh, and a board member for the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. Um, the uh, the Miss Major's concerns with the bill um, are, are that uh, she feels like it's a marketing tool uh, and then it gives a legitimacy for, to shelters to euthanize pets that are in uh, their care. And Dr. Steele kind of counters her point by noting that there are no actual kill shelters in Colorado. Uh, and if there were, uh, this bill would explicitly uh, prohibit them. Uh, but the rest of the article kind of highlights specific parts of the bill that uh, Ms. Major and Dr. Steele oppose and support respectively. Um, and it seems that Ms. Major uh, takes issue with the vagueness of the bill and states that just because an animal scratches doesn't mean they're aggressive. Uh, he or she just may not want to be held. And maybe while that's not social, it's not a reason that you kill something. However, you know, having looked at the bill, uh, it does not specifically discuss the implication of dogs and cats that are, you know, not social. Uh, and actually, it explicitly states that no dog or cat will be uh, allowed to suffer from some, such extreme anxiety that it mutilates or develops obsessive compulsive disorders, and that every cat and dog um, will have uh, any medical problem addressed uh, while in the shelter uh, or while under the care uh, of a shelter or rescue. Um, and so, you know, having, having looked at this bill, uh, I do kind of agree that it is a bit vague at times, and it's kind of difficult to digest due to the legal uh, verbiage. Uh, but there, there certainly isn't any language uh, in the bill that would make it easier to euthanize cats and dogs in shelters, and especially when you compare it to current Colorado law. Um, and I, I would probably agree with Dr. Steele that it, it does aim to accomplish just the, uh, just the opposite. And that's where I have a, a bit of a problem with the article itself and some of the larger points that are raised with an, with an article like this. Uh, I mean, just kind of starting from, from the top when they discuss uh, the title and they say, uh, animal expert believes Colorado bill. Um, th they are using the word expert while referring to Miss Major, who from what I can tell, her, her only expertise is founding an animal sanctuary. Um, and which, you know, to be fair, probably does give her more expertise than the average person. However, I can't find any advanced training or education that she has received that does give her opinion more weight. Um, and so the actual animal expert that is included in the article, Dr. Steele, um, she's, you know, she's a veterinarian. Uh, she runs one of the largest humane societies in the state, and she's a board member of the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. And I think that you know, when, when we're developing legislation 
um, that uh, kind of discusses um, you know, how we treat animals, the decisions that we make for them. It's important that we do rely on these type of experts who spend their careers studying these issues. And you know, for a journalist, I do appreciate airing the concerns of voters and stakeholders um, and, and people involved in the animal rescue industry. Um, but I, I do find it a little bit irresponsible to refer to Ms. Major as an animal expert, specifically when they have Dr. Steele uh, as the counterpoint uh, in the article. And we probably should try to you know, reserve the, the designation of expert to someone like Dr. Steele whenever we uh, discuss these issues. I agree. I mean, again, because when I uh, obviously when I when I read that article and uh, again, I'm, I'm all in on socially conscious sheltering. I do feel that it is really one of the most uh, responsible ways uh, for sheltering uh, it is taking it's really helping all to me. Uh, it's helping all shelters really, uh, you know, share the burden, you know, of being able to take care of pets. Again, we don't want to have just one, you know, only a few shelters really taking care of really the sick pets, and they just don't have the capacity to be able to do that. And when we have these no-kill shelters who are trying to, again, most of them, again, just doing an amazing job, and they are trying to help all these pets find homes. But when we have a very select few of these shelters that are, that no-kill shelters that are having to meet numbers and, you know, basically unloading some of these really hard cases and really, you know, these medically, you know, very financially you know, burdensome uh, cases onto other shelters, you know, dropping, you know, putting them into other areas. That's where it becomes a big problem because now we have, you know, shelters who are trying to do the right thing. Uh, and unfortunately they have are now looked down upon because they're putting pets down who are suffering. Um, but again, I, to me, it's, it's the right thing. And so we have to make sure owners are aware of these things. And that again, socially conscious sheltering to me is really the answer to be able to, as a whole, help all shelters, <clears throat> you know, you know, help them basically, you know, uh, share the burden for everything that goes on and it helps to, you know, so that all pets receive quality care, um, but also they don't necessarily do undue suffering um, because again, they just don't have the means to be able to take care of a cat that or a dog that has congestive heart failure and, you know, has a kidney disease and then they're trying to adopt it out and they, it, the facilities that they have, they just, they just don't have the numbers or the, or, or the, or the finances to be able to, to do those type of things. And so uh, this type of sheltering to me is really the, the, the best way to go about long term um, for shelters. Yeah, and I think that the, the bill, certainly the motivations behind it, um, take that kind of in, into consideration, kind of requiring every you know, pet and shelters to you know, get uh, adequate and um, you know, prompt veterinary treatment. Um, you're not going to see a lot of states that go to those lengths to, to protect pets and, and, and welfare. And, you know, sure, with, with every bill, there is a little bit of, um, you know, vagueness and sometimes they're not perfect. But this one, I, I do think that um, it, it's certainly, again, another, another step in the right direction for improving animal welfare. Yeah, I think it almost needs to be vague because it's, it's, not nev it's never going to be black and white with these sorts of things. And we're all trying to achieve that goal of animal welfare and trying to do its best for these, for these pets. When we try to categorize versus kill versus no kill, you are, even in those no kill situations, you're going to be compromising the welfare of animals. It's either we overcrowd these shelters because we can't do anything with with the pets that aren't being adopted out, or we are trying to keep pets alive that nece won't necessarily be in a good mental state, or they are suffering for, from some other medical issue. Um, so it makes sense to kind of put a bill in place and, and try to you know, kind of appease everybody with this sort of thing. But I think the main goal is, is trying to get that animal welfare in these shelters 
um, at its at its highest. And I think that's what they're trying to achieve with this, which is, uh, you know, I think a good situation for the animals. Excellent. So again, my hope is, is that this campaign takes off. Uh, again, you guys raise amazing points. And, and again, we're just going to have to kind of see how this goes. And so uh, as, as more people are aware uh, of how these, these shelters are uh, trying to uh, <clears throat> you basically uh, you know, do business and I hope you're doing it in the most responsible way. And my hope is again, that this, this socially uh, conscious shelter really kind of takes off. And so, all right, McCarthy, what's on the uh, COVID, COVID front at this point in time? Right, so more COVID talk. So now that we have uh, discovered that COVID is, is very contagious in humans, we are now seeing that it actually has uh, shown up in a, in a couple pets in the US. Um, that has been in, seen in cats and also a pug has recently been diagnosed. Um, overall, there are very few animals that have been tested positive for it. Um, so currently they are not recommending routine testing. Um, it's going to be kind of a case-by-case -case basis based on what state and public officials determine if testing is warranted. Um, typically, these animals uh, could have some mild respiratory signs. Uh, typically, they recover really well. They haven't noticed that uh, it's, it's fatal in these pets as of uh, what we've seen. Um, it seems to be transmitted from humans to pets, though it could pass from pets to pets. There is no current evidence of pets being able to pass it to humans, so it doesn't seem like it is a, playing a big role in spreading the virus to humans, though we still need to know more as, as we do with most things with this virus. Um, so current recommendations with, with pets is basically try to social distance your pets. So try not to let them interact with other pets, other humans, um, other, um, Basically trying to keep them in the house if they're, if they're kitties, walk a dog on a leash, try not to let it uh, go to dog parks or be around other crowded areas. Um, and if you yourself are sick with, with COVID um, or if you are showing symptoms, basically as you try to avoid interactions with humans, try to avoid, avoid interactions with your pet. Um, you can have somebody else take care of your pet, uh, wash your hands, have a face covering if you are going to interact with them. And the CDC and USDA um, will have kind of more information as updates, updates occur. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You know, I was going to uh, uh, joke with you, McCarthy, that um, we're going to have to have an all dog practice uh, when we had those two cats become positive, but then a dog got became positive, McCarthy. So we're going to, we're going to have to see all of them. Right? And so uh, again, you know, this, this COVID thing just keeps, you know, more just keeps developing. My, my hope is, is that uh, we're, you know, hopefully going to start seeing the, the downward trend, hopefully. And I think we've been my hope is, is that we're kind of at the peak. And, um, you know, the only concern always that I have is that cats get upper respiratory issues all the time. And so, you know, I just don't want owners to, my first concern when I saw IDEX, you know, had developed a new testing for, um, you know, for COVID and, you know, we can test cats now for it. it's not taking away from any human testing or anything like that. And it's, um, uh, but my first concern was, you know, oh my goodness, I just, I'm praying that people are not going to overreact and they see respiratory, respiratory issues in cats and, you know, start having these cats being, you know, displaced in shelters or, you know, um, having, um, or wanting to get them just tested, you know. So again, I haven't seen an uptick uh, yet, but uh, hopefully, hopefully again, as we keep learning more and we actually see how, uh, how many cats and how many dogs are actually, actually turning up positive, because now that we have these tests available, hopefully we'll be able to actually see numbers. And then, um, and then hopefully it, it does sound like at this time, there's no evidence of 
pets being able to give it to humans, which I'm the most thankful for. Hopefully that um, that stays the case. And so, well, again, a lot of this is always a, a wait and see, and we'll have to kind of go from there. All right, you guys. So uh, again, uh, again, if you guys need some lighthearted fun at this point in time, all right, from all everything that's going on in the news, you guys need to check out uh, the BBC's uh, commentator, Andrew Carter. Have you guys seen this at all yet? You guys, I, I haven't. <laughs> it I have is not. Ab- absolutely, it's absolutely hilarious. This genius is doing play-by-play commentary of his dogs every day, doing everyday activities like chewing <laughs> on bones or like just eating food. But he's he's commenting on it like they are competing. It's absolutely hilarious. And if you guys haven't seen it, you guys need to check it out, especially if you need some laughs in your life right now. So, awesome guys! Thanks, team, for keeping us up to date in animal news. Up next, we finally get to talk with the man, the myth, the legend. Dr. John Sarabasi, and we're going to discuss bite prevention when we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Hello and welcome back to Healthy Tales. We're here today to discuss the multifaceted problem of bike prevention. So many people are drawn to dogs. When we see them waggling their tails and acting playful, it's tempting to want to pet them. But 4.5 million people are bitten each year, and according to the CDC, approximately 800,000 require medical attention. There is a severe emotional aspect for bite victims and a financial burden for insurers, which compounds the serious problem. There is no better person to talk to about this issue than the incredible Dr. John Sarabasi. Dr. Sarabasi is a highly sought-after speaker on animal behavior by far the best speaker that I've been around. Acclaimed co-author of Decoding Your Dog, got his veterinary medical degree from the University of Illinois, I-L-L. I-N-I. <laughs> became an American College of Veterinary Behaviorist in 2006, 
and he's the past CVMA president. John, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's good to be back in the old stomping grounds. Absolutely. You put a lot of effort and time into becoming an animal behaviorist. So how does one become a board certified behaviorist? Well, primarily, uh, we have to do a variety of things. We have to um, see a number of cases and document those cases in detail, treatment and how we manage them. Uh, we also have to attend uh, several different uh, classes dealing with behavior and psychology. Uh, we also um, uh, need to uh, work with a, uh, an existing board certified behaviorist uh, who monitors our progress. And then ultimately, we have to sit for a board exam, a uh, two to three day board exam, and pass that in order to become board certified. For me, it took about eight years because I took sort of a non-traditional approach where I kept my job in practice while I was getting, doing my residency. That's uh, unbelievable. Uh, and John, I have, uh, I've had this situation come up a number of times where a client comes to me uh, demonstrating, their, their pets demonstrating severely difficult uh, behavior. And naturally, I recommend that they see an animal behaviorist. Uh, many times, though, I've been asked, oh, your behaviorist? Is that like Caesar Milan? And obviously, it kills my soul. So can you explain the difference between me, uh, you, and a, and a, and a person, like, person like Caesar Milan? Well, um, I say generally the difference between a behaviorist and a trainer is that uh, I like to use the analogy that a trainer is sort of like a psychologist or a sociologist, where they're dealing with a dog who's showing normal behavior, but it's sort of inappropriate and causing a problem in the social situation that the dog is in. So a trainer is there to help shape the dog's behavior to something that's more appropriate within the living situation. As a veterinarian, a veterinary behaviorist, we're more like a psychiatrist in that we deal with behaviors that often are abnormal. Uh, they're based in genetic abnormality or physiologic abnormality, and there's actually um, neurotransmitter chemical issues just like in people. So we have to balance not only uh, training and environmental changes, but also uh, at times we have to deal with use of medication to try to normalize the behavior. Excellent. How many behaviorists are there in the country, and are there actually any in, in Illinois? Uh, yeah, there's about 80 some behaviorists in the United States. Uh, in Illinois, uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, three uh, boarded behaviorists, myself, um, uh, Dr. Kelly Ballantyne and Dr. Colleen Cook. Oh, nice. <clears throat> and so uh, just so I understand too, like your career, my goodness, I mean, you went to Southern Illinois, I think for undergrad, then you went to the University of Illinois for vet school. All right. But then you moved to, uh, I think, Pennsylvania, right? To do yes. large and small animal uh, practice? Yes. Yeah. My wife and I uh, were both graduated in the same veterinary class together. We moved, after graduation, we moved to north central Pennsylvania. And for four years, we lived in a rural community. And I did primarily dairy practice. And uh, Elise did small animal and did some large animal surgery. And then we moved back to Chicago in uh, 1988 to open up a small animal practice that eventually became the Carroll Stream Animal Hospital. Unbelievable. And so it's just, it's just remarkable to me uh, that you had, uh, again, had a practice. Uh, again, you had a small family, two, two beautiful daughters, okay, uh, owned your own practice, and then you wanted to become a behaviorist. What drove you really to really want to become a behaviorist? Well, first of all, I would say that you look at yourself in the mirror in terms of the amount of work you're doing. <laughs> For those who don't know, Dr. Contreras, in addition to running a busy small animal practice, has four young children that he does such a great job as a father with. So I appreciate that, John. 
Appreciate that. Um, so, uh, you know, when I graduated veterinary school, um, like I said, I've been, like I mentioned earlier, I did the dairy practice thing. I did small animal medicine and I really enjoyed that. But I, I've always had a feeling of wanting to be challenged. And uh, in veterinary medicine, doing a specialty is sort of a, that type of a challenge. So for personal reasons, I, I think I wanted to uh, prove that I can do that. And I was looking for a, a specialty that would give me the opportunity to pursue that specialty while still maintaining a, our, our practice, our general practice. But also I chose behavior because frankly, there was no one in the, the state that was doing it. And uh, I was coming across so many patients with behavior problems and I had no clue on how to deal with it. And it was frustrating uh, to walk into an exam room knowing you didn't really have a good answer for the, for the uh, client in terms of how to, ma how to manage their pet. So that was a big stimu uh, stimulus for me to try to um, achieve some degree of competency and, and manage these cases. I mean, John, I agree. I mean, behavior is really the number one, again, reason why I know that pets are relinquished to, you know, to shelters. And it is one of the most right. challenging things uh, as a veterinarian to be able to really help owners with. But I really feel it's really almost the number one thing uh, other than skin issues that, that we see, you know, in, in a practice. And so, yeah, it is just so important. All right. Uh, so when you were the CVMA president, um, were there ever times when you guys had uh, had to deal with uh, bite prevention, like campaigns, or were there like legislations or policies that you guys put into place that tried uh, to help with bite prevention? Well, this was back, uh, I was president of the Chicago Veterinary Medical Association in 2000. Uh, so that was about 20 years ago. And I can't remember yesterday very well, <laughs> much less 20 years ago. But, um, you know, I think I don't recall specific bite legislation during my tenure as president. I do recall that we made an effort uh, to look into the relationship between um, animal abuse and domestic violence. Uh, and, and at that time, that was sort of a new concept where uh, uh, people who were engaging in domestic violence, if you look at their background, they had also engaged in animal abuse pr prior to expanding into dealing with to abusing people. So that was an effort that we had made. Uh, but I think just generally with bite prevention, it was um, just educating the, the members of the CVMA on, on what's involved with bite and what the statistics are. Excellent. Yeah, because I mean, there is a huge correlation definitely in seeing, you know, uh, domestic abuse, animal abuse. And again, this is where we see a lot of these, uh, I think, again, fearful behaviors and things that come, come about. So, uh, so no, that's great. What, what are your feelings, though, on breed specific legislation? So um, I think you know, the way I would probably start with looking at that issue is, first of all, with, with people, we you know, we don't, classify whole groups of people and say, and, and have restrictions on those large groups of people. When we, we deal with uh, problems within, um, within society, we identify individuals and manage uh, behavior problems within individuals and take whatever steps are necessary. And it shouldn't be any different with dogs either. You know, in my practice, um, we see aggression in all breeds of dogs. And I can't say that any one specific breed is overrepresented. And so the, the emphasis should be on dealing with not only the individual animal, but the individual owner to make sure that uh, they're taking the correct steps to keep uh, not only the, themselves and their dogs safe, but society safe. So that, you know, when you're owning a dog, you, you, you accept certain responsibilities and not only to the animal, but to society in general. And, and I think that should be where the emphasis is. There really has not shown to be any effectiveness uh, in reducing bites uh, by um, outlawing specific breeds. So I'm against breed-specific legislation. Excellent. Excellent. And I am too. I always had the hard time understanding how, because 
uh, again, there's this failure to take into account one normal dog behavior. Uh, and again, when we see there's no accurate way of recording mixed breed dogs commonly described as pure breeds. And so that's where I have like this extremely hard time uh, being able to, how do you come up with some, stuff, stuff like this? As well as things like, I think it's like intact dogs represent, um, you know, as far as like presented for behaviorists for um, dominance aggression, I think it was. And then like 75% of all intact uh, dogs are, are the ones that are, have uh, bite related cases. And so, I mean, there's other, definitely other, um, you know, means and other, other areas where we could definitely maybe focus our time or, or where, you know, we're seeing more uh, bites coming from, but breed specific legislation to me was always just, um, uh, again, it just seems like an inhumane way to, uh, try to control that type of population i don't understand how you enforce such a thing especially when most people can't describe what breed most dogs are and so right. um right. what legislations or policies do you feel uh have been helpful in curbing um you know bites uh you know or any, any laws well i think you know there's a few things number one uh, you know obviously leash laws are important um you know having a, a dog on leash is sort of an unnatural thing for a dog to have to be on. It does impair the dog's ability to create distance and spacing uh, when they feel threatened or uncomfortable. However, um, you can't expect to have a dog out in public uh, in a populated area and, ex and expect it to do well. And plus it's dangerous to the dog to run out in traffic. So leash laws are, are vital. It also means that training on leash is important. So seeing a good trainer, a positive reinforcement-based trainer to teach appropriate leash uh, manners is, is really important. So leash laws are critical. Um, and then also, uh, I, I think what sometimes gets missed is um, we see a lot of bites occur from dogs who are not managed well uh, in, for example, in yard situations. So these dogs are loose in yards for extended periods of time, unsupervised, and often they get frustrated with not being able to reach in, uh, the target of dogs going by or people going by the yard, and they get very frustrated and emotionally aroused. And if the time comes where they can get out of the yard, some severe bites happen as a, uh, dogs attack people and other dogs going by the yard. So I'm a strong proponent not leading, leaving dogs unsupervised in the yard. Uh, yards should not be seen as babysitters. Fenced yards should not be seen as babysitters. So you should always be outside with your dog, interacting with your dog when they're in the yard. Uh, so that's a big one uh, that I don't think is really, uh, there's not a big push on for that at this point. Um, and then I think the, there's advantages to the dangerous dog, vicious dog legislations that a lot of the communities have, because by employing that type of legislation, you're focusing on the individual animal owner and the individual dog and making adjustments and, and necess if necessary, uh, making legislative maneuvers based on the individual and not on a whole class of dog. Oh, great. <clears throat> and I think that was actually going to be one of my next questions is, is there any other um, policies you feel should be in place to help prevent dog, uh, dog bites or anything like that? Yeah, like I said, I think legislatively, um, I think paying attention or ad addressing the issue of dogs being loose and unattended or unsupervised in a yard, I think is a big one that, that most people are, or most communities are not really addressing at this point. But after that, it's, it's about education. Uh, it's about educating uh, people on um, uh, what to do with their children. Uh, that's a big one. We can probably talk about, you know, uh, how children get bitten and then also guests to the home. That's uh, one of the most uh, common ways that uh, strangers get bitten when they come to a house with a dog who has fearful and aggressive tendencies. Uh, but also, like I said, educating children on what they should and should not be doing um, around their own dogs is, is really important. Uh, 
So for the, for, the out, for the stranger outside, it's controlling on leash and controlling in the yard. Uh, for indoors, children getting bitten, it's often their own dog and educating them uh, and parents on how to deal with their own dogs. And then, you know, if necessary, if you've got a dog who's fearful and has a history of aggression, when guests come over, that dog should be confined um, so that a person's not exposed. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so what kind of community involvement do you think is needed to create a sound bite prevention program, you know, that is effective? Well, I think a lot of communities will develop um, uh, task forces or either through the police department or animal control uh, to address investigation of animal bites and appropriate action uh, in those situations when a bite occurs. And so that's important. But I think they should also be involved with education, having programs where uh, they can teach parents what's the best way to manage uh, their, own, uh, their children and their dogs in a household, uh, and then best ways to um, help mitigate or prevent or reduce the tendency for bites to occur to strangers as well as their own children. So education is important, not just enforcement. Excellent. Uh, so when, uh, when owners are looking for a good dog trainer, they're having some issues, um, what, should they, what should they look for? Or hopefully to help prevent more issues. Kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of the problem behaviors we have with, dog, with dogs, particularly aggressive dogs, is not about dominance. That's, not, that's really not a concept that we really uh, attest to any longer. You know, these dogs are not trying to dominate us or try to take control. You know, the definition of dominance is a, a dog who uh, tries to take resources away from another dog, or in this case, a person, if you're trying to say the dominance is aggression is happening to a person. So that would mean a dog would have to get you to get up from your table so they can eat your food or take the remote control from you <laughs> so they can put on their own channel and watch, uh, you know, National Geographic or something. So, you know, that doesn't really happen. The majority of issues we have with dogs particularly when we talk about bites, occurs because um, dogs who are in a kind of anxious, fearful state and are reacting aggressively out of self-protection. So where that comes in with training is that there are groups of trainers who are aversive trainers, meaning they use punishment and force in order to enforce this concept of dominance. And when we're talking about dogs who are mostly fearful, that's the op absolute opposite of what you want to do. So when you're looking for a trainer, you need to look for a trainer who's involved with reinforcement-based training. Uh, they don't use choke collars. They don't use pinch collars. They don't use leash corrections. You know, they use reinforcement to um, uh, shape or uh, reward the appropriate behaviors uh, present. And then also when a good trainer will recognize when behaviors are not normal, that there are abnormalities present, and then they'll be willing to refer. Uh, so if you go to any trainer and they start talking about um, pinch collars, choke collars, boot camp, any, uh, any training facility that involves footwear, such as boot camp, <laughs> uh, you, really, you really want to avoid if you can. Good deal. Uh, and so what are some helpful tips? You, you touched on it a little bit, but what are some other helpful tips for families with kids to help prevent bites? So I think a couple big ones. There's this misconception that um, when you get a, a young dog, a puppy, it's important to handle the dog and handle the dog's food while they're eating in order to teach it that, uh, you know, if kids come along and, and uh, handle it while it's eating, it won't bite. And actually the opposite occurs. You start messing with the dog while they're eating. Eventually they get really wary of people being around while they're eating. And the analogy I like to use is that, you know, if you're at a restaurant and you're eating a nice steak or a vegan burger or whatever is your thing, <laughs> uh, and the waiter keeps coming over to try to remove food from your table in front of you prematurely, you know, eventually that fork becomes a lethal weapon and you're going to stab <laughs> the guy in the back of the hand. It's the same with dogs. And we want to respect their right to eat 
quietly and privately and uninterrupted. So, so that's important. Also, you know, control toys. So not only the dog's toys, but your children's toys, you know, uh, because what ends up happening often is a, a dog will steal a toy from a child and a child, a young child will go to remove it and uh, get bit in the process. So controlling access to toys so you regulate what the dog has access to. And then also telling a child, informing them that if you know, they need something from the dog to go talk to the parent first to assist in removing an, an object from, from the dog because that increases the risk of getting bitten. Um, and, um, you know, and then the, the last thing uh, I guess I would mention is, you know, the old adage, let sleeping dogs lie. Well, there's a reason for that. You know, <clears throat> often kids will get bitten by interrupting, jumping on, approaching a dog while they're lying quietly. And dogs like me, if I'm in my recliner, I don't want to be bugged, right? I'm watching something on TV. So if you got a dog who's laying quietly, they're doing it for a reason. They need a break. So teaching the ch children not to approach a dog that's lying down. And it, learn recalls. That's another place where a trainer comes in, teaching the dog to teaching the child to call the dog to them. And if the dog decides not to come, leave it alone. Give it some space. A dog has the right to say no, uh, just as we all do. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, I, I find myself having to really train my my three year old. Uh, she uh, loves my kitty cat, okay, and she is constantly, yeah. constantly, all right, squeezing this thing. <laughs> it's in no way my poor kitty cat. And so uh, I, I think yeah. I need a, a, a child trainer, and so that's that's the next thing that I'm going to try to get to. <laughs> what do you feel are the three uh, the top three causes for bites? Um, I think we'll see bites occur in three primary situations. Um, <clears throat> number one is um, out on the street. So if you've got a dog on leash, um, it, it's, uh, you know, for some reason, people feel the need to come up to a strange dog on a leash walk and, and pet it. And, you know, as people, we don't walk down the street and if we see a stranger walking the other way, throw out our arms and give that person a hug, <laughs> particularly these days. Um, and it's just not something you would do as a person. And for sure, it's not something dogs would do. Uh, and plus, you don't know the personality of the dog. So really respect a dog's space on a leash walk. <clears throat> and as an owner, you know, don't expect that your dog on leash is going to be comfortable going up to every stranger. Um, secondly is what we mentioned with children. That's the other area where, where bites occur very commonly. And like we had talked about practice appropriate respect for dogs when they're eating and when they're lying quietly. And then thirdly, um, it's people visiting a home. Uh, that's really common as well. And, uh, you know, it's a good idea in a normal dog to just to, whenever you have guests over, you know, have the guests toss small treats to the dog and get it used to thinking that, Hey, when, when people come over, <laughs> good stuff happens. But if your dog has got a history of your aggression and nervousness and fear around strangers visiting the home, it's really best to just keep them separate but equal to avoid a potential confrontation. Excellent. Uh, so what are some signs, too, that people should be looking at for so they understand like what things, what dogs are showing to maybe help prevent them um, for approaching dogs that might, might cause them harm? Yeah, I mean, it's a big thing because, you know, dogs communicate with each other, uh, based on body posture, you know, they don't vo verbalize as much as we do. We're very much a visual or a, um, a vocal people. And we sometimes don't recognize the subtleties of dog behavior, a body posture. Um, <clears throat> so simple things like uh, look, primarily looking for signs of fear and, and um, uh, defensive behavior in dogs. <clears throat> so, you know, the common ones that most people recognize, you know, in dogs who have, don't have long floppy ears, uh, ears are, are down. Uh, tail can be tucked. The head can be lowered. 
you can see dogs furrow their brow just like in people. So as people, when we're concerned, you know, we'll, we'll kind of crunch up our brow and like, you know, look, look that way. And dogs do the same thing. So head lowered, ears lowered, tail lowered. Um, uh, their front part of their body often is lower than their back part of their body. They're not looking at you. Often dogs who are concerned are looking off to the side or looking down. Uh, and they may be looking at you through the sides of uh, their eye or, or looking up at you while their head is lowered. So basically, if you see a lot of white to the eye, that's the sclera, um, that's a dog who is concerned about what you're up to. And it's important to just give that dog space. Uh, there are really some really great resources uh, on the web uh, where you can get um, some uh, guides or, or charts that show body postures of dogs and what to look for. So just you know, do a search for um, dog body posture chart. Uh, that can be helpful. And then there's also on YouTube, there's a, a video, really good video uh, from a group that's called Zoom Room, Z-O-O-M Room. Uh, and they have a guide, uh, a nice about a four or five minute video on looking at dog body posture that's really excellent. It gives you a good con um, understanding of what dogs are trying to say. You know, and that's what it's all about. It's learning dog language uh, so that you can communicate better and predict behavior better. Awesome, John. Yeah, that was going to be my next question as far as about resources and what, uh, what owners can, uh, where they can find them. And so, um, so great, great. Thanks, John, for that. Um, John, again, I really want to just thank you so much. You have been an unbelievable mentor to me, an unbelievable ambassador for our profession. Uh, you've had an exemplary career. And again, you are one of the most genuine people that I know. Uh, I'm so grateful for you and Elise. Uh, love you guys dearly. Uh, again, John, I'm just so thankful to have you on my show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome, Andre. It's good to be here. And uh, congratulations on your show and keep it up. You're doing a great job educating the community and the world. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. When we, when we come back, I'll be wrapping things up with my product of the week. Stick around. You are not going to want to miss this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. 
We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. All right, everyone, it's time for the product of the week. This is one of my favorite products. This product can help your pet live longer, can help prevent pain, keep your babies from developing painful abscesses and soft tissue damage. It's inexpensive, it's readily available in stores, it's easy to use, and it gives our pets longer, healthier, and happier lives. I'm of course talking about the toothbrush, a simple, good old-fashioned toothbrush. It's one of the most powerful products that we can use to keep our pets healthy. When, our, when we smell doggy breath, and again, I'm using air quotes, people. This is not normal. It is a severe infection in our pet's mouth. Dental calculus is an infection in the mouth that needs to be treated. Periodontal disease is the most common infectious disease seen in veterinary practices, and 75% of all pets have periodontal disease by the age of three. The amazing thing about this is we can change our views on brushing our pet's teeth and not think of it as foreign, but as a normal everyday process that we do. Just as we brush our teeth every day, we need to start understanding that our pets need this type of care as well for their mouth. Fun fact is that one of the studies used to help decide how often humans need to brush their teeth was done on beagles. They found that we need to brush our teeth every 24 hours to prevent the biofilm from taking hold on our teeth. Thus, this is why we need to brush daily. I like a lot of the oral products on the market, like dental chews, dental diets, but nothing. None of those products take the place of brushing. They absolutely will complement brushing, but nothing takes the place of brushing. I get the response all the time that my pets eat hard food or chew hard bones, so my pets don't need to brush. What I always have to show owners is that when kibble comes in contact with the tooth, kibble just crumbles and does not produce any friction on the sides of the teeth. Furthermore, when dogs are biting on some of these deer antlers or hard bones, they're fracturing their teeth, which compounds the problem because now they're losing the smoothing enamel on their teeth and the dental calculus has a much better surface to adhere to. So let's make toothbrushing a successful process. <laughs> One, get a toothbrush and pet toothpaste. Human toothpaste is not meant to be swallowed and therefore not okay for pets. So do get pet toothpaste and put them both in a cup in an area in the house where you guys like to relax. Next, for the first couple months, just get your pet to lick the pet toothpaste off the toothbrush, all right? Again, doggy toothpaste tastes really good and you can get all types of flavors. Again, in this phase, you are simply getting your pet to associate the brush with the treat so they have a positive association with the brush. Finally, when you introduce the toothbrush into the mouth, go slowly. First, just brush the front teeth and only do a few brushes so your pet can get used to it and not hate you. Then a little more brushing a little further back until they're used to it and you can do the whole mouth. Finally, once you, can, once you get this routine down, it should only take you 30 seconds a day for a lifetime of great oral health and best of all, fresh kisses for life. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy and Dr. Robbie Ansel and to my expert guest, Dr. John Sarabasi. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips to help you unleash your pet parenting power.
Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.